Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and today's episode will probably be a little bit shorter. As you can hear, um, my voice is a little bit at. I just returned from vacay. Um, I did a week-long cruise with my mother, which was actually wonderful. And uh, I'm still trying to get my groove back here. So watching a long and involved film was kind of out of the question for me this week. However, I am always down to talk about my absolute favorite show from my favorite director, the master of suspense himself. So I already kind of had a plan to do this. Um, But here we are today. We'll be discussing the iconic anthology series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. song you just heard, Funeral March of a Marionette, accompanied by the rounded drawn shape of Hitchcock's side profile is one of the most iconic TV opening sequences of all time. The song was actually suggested by Bernard Herrmann, who we talked about during our Vertical episode, and I hope y'all listened to that one. Um, And the drawing is actually by Alfred himself. So when Alfred Hitchcock Presents premiered, uh, Alfie was already about three decades into his film career. So the drawing the music, and the iconic good evening that you get have basically become synonymous with Alfred Hitchcock's brand. So this was the time when TV went off the air. Um, During the 1950s and 1960s, typically around midnight, you'd have some kind of sign-off from a television station. They may play the national anthem or a small jingle, and then you'd get those boo tones or a fuzzy screen until they decided to sign back on at 7 or 8 in the morning. Uh, So typically, the earlier your show was, um, the more likely people were to watch it because they hadn't gone to bed yet, the kids and everyone would still gather around the TV, but having a show on Sunday night probably was better than a Tuesday night because Tuesday night is a working night, Sunday night is still family night, and is considered the weekend. So uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, at first aired weekly at 9.30 on CBS on Sunday nights from 1955 to 1960, and then moved up to 8.30 on NBC, but was on Tuesday nights from 1960 to 1962. And uh, the ratings did reflect that. The ratings did slightly go down for the Tuesday night viewing on NBC, probably because people maybe didn't know where to find it. Um, But also, it wasn't on Sunday night anymore, so less people probably had the chance to watch it. After 1962, um, it was followed by the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, where the show went from being 25 minutes long to almost an hour, and that lasted for three seasons from September 1962 to June 1965, um, which added another 93 episodes to the 268 that already existed for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So you're looking at about 371 episodes total. Now, I've heard the show be compared to The Twilight Zone, which was out around the same time. Uh, Twilight Zone, I believe, started in 1959. This one started in 1955. And while the general format is the same, it's a black and white show, of course, um, with a prologue 
uh, episode and the epilogue all by the host. Uh, The Twilight Zone tended to focus on more otherworldly subjects, hence, you know, Twilight Zone. Uh, Plots slightly based outside of reality, things that probably wouldn't happen to us, but things that we could relate to. While most of the episodes, things that happened on Alfred Hitchcock Presents were entirely possible, um, were typically revolved around crime or people just making general bad decisions, things that we could do in everyday life and the consequences that they face for those bad decisions. Alfred Hitchcock was born August 13th, 1899 and passed on my mom's birthday, April 29th in 1980, which kind of seems appropriate as my love of Hitchcock kind of comes from my mom. Now, if you don't mind, I just want to pause for a second for a little Nikki history. I know you guys have heard me talk about how much I love Alfred Hitchcock before, but this may give you a little bit more context as to why. So, As a kid growing up in Chicago, one of the things that I looked forward to every year was our yearly trip to Orlando, and we would visit all of the theme parks, or we would usually pick like two to three theme parks to go to. Now, my fave of all the parks was always Universal Studios, um, even more than Disney, and they actually used to have this Hitchcock attraction there which may not sound exciting, but it was kind of fun. So at first they did a few demonstrations of how like specific scenes were done from iconic movies like Psycho and um, The uh, Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, We were, after that, you're led into a theater for a 3D showing of The Birds, which ends with actual birds tearing off like the movie screen that you're watching and they just fly around the theater. All of course happening in 3D, not in real life, but it's supposed to be terrifying in 3D. And this was like the 1990s when like, whatever. It doesn't sound that exciting maybe, but I think it was exciting for me because Hitchcock was something that like my mom kind of liked that I could also be into. Thus my love for Hitchcock began after that. And I can remember as a kid, I knew that my mom liked, liked Alfred Hitchcock, so like for Christmas and stuff, I would buy her Alfred Hitchcock DVDs and things like that because it was the one thing that I was like, okay, I really like this thing and I also know you like this thing, so we can relate on this thing. Any hoodles, for our first episode, Alfred explains a little bit about how he's going to participate in the show. As I mentioned before, he typically likes to do small cameos in his film. Now, in the show, he says he's going to serve as a, quote, accessory before and after the fact to give the title to people who can't read and to tidy up afterwards for those who don't understand the endings. Now, his demeanor in the openings and closings of the episodes is really dry. If you know how British humor is, you know exactly what I mean. It's very, just very dry and matter of fact. In the American version of the show, he would usually make like a funny quip about the commercial break or the sponsors, Um, but in the British version of the show, he usually makes jokes about Americans. (laughs) So we're going to jump into two episodes of the show that are kind of similar, but a little bit different, and you'll see what I mean as we talk about both of them. So, of course, for our first episode, we're going to talk about the first episode of the show released on October 2nd, 1955. Now, interestingly enough, um, 
my original first episode of this podcast was going to be about um, The Twilight Zone. And I think that the first episode of The Twilight Zone came out on October 3rd, 1959. So both of these shows are October babies, much like I am, but they're Libras. They're not Scorpios, which is really interesting. Anyway, so this episode, Revenge, came out October 2nd, 1955, and stars Ralph Meeker and Vera Miles. Now, you know, normally we go through the mains on our movies. On these episodes, we're going to go through the people who are literally on the title card. There are other people in the episode, but the main people are the ones that are on the title card. So, our episode begins in a trailer park right off the beach in California, where an alarm wakes up Carl Spann for work. He walks to the other bed, and he kisses his wife Elsa on the cheek and heads in to make breakfast while she sleeps in. Now, I know that older couples, you know, sometimes slept in separate beds, but usually not younger ones. However, this may have something to do with the reason that they move there, which we'll get into later, but they clearly are all over each other and in love with each other. So the sleeping in separate beds is not because of no romance. Anyway, after he makes breakfast, he comes in and kisses her and says, hey, worthless, which is kind of rude, but also cute at the same time. Like if my husband went in and made breakfast for himself and me before he went to work and then kissed me and said, hey, worthless, I would probably take that. Um, So she's kissing all over him and she clearly wants her some merry time. But he's like literally like, baby, I got to go to work and throws her arms off of him because it's his first day at this new plant in Cali. So he's cleaning up a little bit and he mentions that he hates to leave her alone like this for the first time in three days. But she's okay spending the time relaxing and not doing anything for the first time in a long while. And he mentions that he doesn't know much about the people around there, but she's hopeful and she believes that there's a few sour people everywhere, but folks are like mostly good. So while he thinks her views are a little naive, he also says that her world is nice and quote, some of it spills into mind and makes it nicer when I'm with you. <laughs> so sweet. So she says she's probably going to walk the beach and sunbathe like the doctor prescribed, but she may make him a surprise as she may be a woman with, quote, hidden talents. And he says, and some not so hidden ones. So like clearly this man is head over heels for his wife, like all in love with her. So he dips for it. But he asked this lady who lives across the street or in the trailer across the way, Miss Ferguson, if she can come and check in on his wife while he's gone. Since she doesn't have anything to do, she doesn't have any friends, and she probably liked the visitors. So she goes over, and Elsa has just started making a cake for her hubby. So here's where we learn that Elsa's just had just landed her first ballerina role, and she married Carl around the same time. So she had sort of like a happiness nervous breakdown kind of thing which is interesting but i could see how it could just be too much and carl's engineering job allowed them to transfer for six months out to california so she could get some beach some sun you know stuff like that so as miss ferguson heads out to market elsa goes out to sunbathe and miss ferguson gets a full view of her ballerina legs she has body. So Miss Ferguson leaves to go to the market. Elsa's cake is cooking inside and she's sunbathing outside. Later that day, Carl comes back home from work. The trailer, he's got the groceries. 
trailer's full of smoke. Radio is blaring in the house. He runs in thinking, he thinks maybe like Elsa fell asleep and forgot she was baking. And then he throws the, the burned cakes outside. But he sees her laying on the ground in shock. And she's holding this like wilted carnation. He picks her up, puts her on the bed. She starts to mumble about some man killing her. So Carl kind of coaxes the story out of her. And she's in this horrified wide-eyed shock state and tells him that a salesman came and he asked for money when she said no he grabbed her choked her and she keeps saying he killed me he killed me he killed me <laughs> poor girl so they call for a doctor and while she's not physically hurt she already wasn't mentally well so now she's like a mess and the police are looking for clues, but they can't find any. And the doctor tells Carl that maybe he should just go ahead and get Elsa to a hotel to get her out of the scene of the crime for a while. The police have basically told Carl that until his wife is well enough, they will not be able to do much for him because they can't get any information. Later that night, Carl is sitting bedside watching over Elsa, smoking a cigarette. He pensively kind of says that if he finds the guy He'll kill him. And Elsa wakes up in this really zombified state and says, yes, yes. Like, she's out of it. So right then, the cops pull up to check in on Elsa, but they still don't have any information. Carl goes back in and asks Elsa if she'd like to go to the hotel the next day. And she says, sure. And then he asks if she would know the guy if she saw him. And she says, yes. Oh, yes. Like, she's like, yeah, I would know, dude. So... Obviously, Carl has a plan. So now the next day, they're in the car, and Carl is just kind of driving, just driving around, letting Elsa take in the sights, you know, see things. After a while, she gasps, and she looks over and goes, that's him. Oh, and she's got these big eyes. She looks scared. Carl sees a guy in a gray suit heading into a hotel, pulls over. Make sure that Elsa's good in the car. Follows the guy in. After the guy gets his room key, Carl gets on the elevator with the dude. And the dude's like, what floor are you going to? And Carl goes, you first. And he says, third floor. And he says, me too. Which I would be mad suspicious of. But I guess it's 1955, so people don't just, you know, run around thinking they're about to be murdered. Anyway... Um, they get off. Carl goes past his door, but then turns around and goes back to his room. The door is unlocked because nobody's scared in 1955, apparently. And Karen, I mean, Carl, Karen, Carl goes in. He's got this big wrench. He whacks old boy like three times hard, clearly unalives this man and leaves. Cool. It's done. They out. Yes. So Carl's driving. He's like, you know, Maybe we should drive over to the next town by the water. We can stop and get some lunch on the way if you're hungry. And she's like, yes. So after they've been driving for a little bit, she looks over. She gets that same wide-eyed look on her face and goes, there he is. That's him. As some random dude before the look just like fades off her eyes and like she goes dead behind the eyes again. And Carl hears these police sirens and realizes that his girl is, like, officially gone now. Like, it's it's over, buddy. <laughs> so sad. 
So I told you at the end of every episode, we get an epilogue from Alfie, which kind of sums up what's going on and has a funny reference to the commercial break. And here's this one. Well, they were a pathetic couple. We had intended to call that one death of a salesman, but there were protests from certain quarters. Naturally, Elsa's husband was caught, indicted, tried, convicted, sentenced, and paid his debt to society for taking the law into his own hands. You see, crime does not pay, not even on television. You must have a sponsor. Here is ours, after which I'll return. So now we're going to talk about You Gotta Have Luck. This is the 16th episode uh, that came out on January 15th, 1956. Starred John Cassavetes and Marissa Pavan. This straight up is my favorite episode of the season. Because um, I'm always trying to figure out what the twist is, right? And it was kind of hard. Like, the last one I already kind of knew where we were going with it in the middle of the episode. But it was still good, right? This one... No idea. So you got to stick with me. And I'm going to try to give y'all some clues so y'all can kind of catch on. Like maybe y'all will catch on faster than I did. Anyway. So episode starts with police reports of an escaped convict across the radio waves. Sam Cobbett, an armed robber and murderer who was serving four consecutive 99-year sentences, has gotten out. They have no idea where to find him. They even have a helicopter out looking for him. Now... On a farm, Mary and David are enjoying breakfast and he's making sure that he understands the shopping list that she's written for him. Like he sees BRN rice and thinks it's burnt rice. He sees horseradish and marmalade like on the same line next to each other and thinks there's something called horseradish marmalade. You know, like silly husband stuff. And she's just kind of watching him read over the list, giggling at his little mistakes and she's correcting him, but very lovingly, super cute. And as he's leaving to go to work, she's staring at him all gooey-eyed, and he says he hates leaving her like this. That sounds familiar, right, from the last one. Anyway, so they go to call in the dog, but there's no sign of the dog. Now, earlier, the dog had been outside barking, and all of a sudden, you hear the noise. You know the noise when you hear the noise when the dog, you know what that means. Anyway, they're looking for the dog, but Mary says he's probably out hunting rabbits because he loves hunting rabbits. So husband leaves. She heads in to finish making a pie. She cuts off the edge of the crust and puts the knife down on the table. And as she's turned around to put the pie in the oven, you know exactly who comes in, right? Right, Sam Cobbett. He grabs the knife off the table because in 1955, nobody ever locks their doors. Um, but he grabs a knife off the table and startles her when she turns around. So she tries to lie and say that her husband will be back shortly, but he just saw her husband leave for work and heard their whole conversation, so he knows that's a lie. But he goes, turns on the radio, is blaring to get a sense of, like, where the uh, cops may be looking. And just as he turns it on, the phone rings. And he drags her over to the phone to get her to pick it up. But before she picks it up, he realizes that it's a community line and she has a specific ring. And she says that hers is a long ring, two short rings, and another long ring. And this was not that. So he starts to kind of freak out on her. But then he starts talking about how he hasn't been with a woman in a long time. He's rubbing on her face, getting mad close to her. Ugh. But 
Then all of a sudden the radio broadcast starts talking about him. So he stops messing with her, goes back to the kitchen. He finds out that they're looking for him upstate and he's in this farmhouse. So he feels like he's pretty well hidden. And he asks her to fix him some food. All she has is eggs and bread. He t mentions to her his long-ass prison sentence, and he's holding his knife up to her and basically says, if I kill you, it'll basically be a freebie because I'm already in there for life. And she's like, I get it. And she cracks the egg, and clearly some of the little eggshells go into the thing, but, you know, whatever. Then, as she's cooking, he goes into a long spiel about how you got to have luck. Uh, they said the title. <laughs> Explaining how he decided to break out of jail on a whim. He was just looking for a chance. And if he hadn't been lucky, the opportunity wouldn't have even presented, right? And Mary is glaring at him, still speaking very softly and agreeing that it must have been very difficult to break out. But Sis is like staring him down. So he ends up asking her her name. Then he starts talking about how he likes her accent. And she's kind of, Ita she's got an Italian accent. Starts saying how he likes her wrists. But... She interjects and says he must love his mother because he has an M.A. tattoo on his hand. He pulls back real quick and says, yes, he always wanted to be able to see his mother. So now Sam asks if they have any rods in the house. And she's like, you said rod? What? And he says, rod, like a gun. She's like, no, we don't have guns. Guns are for killing things and we don't kill things. Sam's like, well, it's different when a bank guard has a gun pointed at you. Like, sir, we don't all rob banks. I don't have a gun if I'm not going to commit any crimes. So I need to mention that Sam is annoying. Like, not, not only is he, like, a criminal, but he has a personality. Like, if you, if you were in a meeting with him, you know he would never shut up. And I know you just got out, sir. But every time he talks to this woman, he has to get, like, right in her face grab her arm get right up in her face to talk to her so anyway asks her if he she has money she has a little bit but she offers it you know next thing you know the phone rings and it's her rings you know the long the two shorts and the long and he like girl that's your ring you crazy come get this motherfucking phone and i'm gonna tell you what to say so he picks up the phone for her and it's her mama and he tells her to say, you know, her husband is out. He'll be out until after 8. And uh, say, she says goodbye. And Sam even hangs up the phone for her. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's all in her face making sure she sticks to this script. So now Sam hears a car pull up. It's Mary's neighbor, Maude, and her daughter. Of course, he's like, get rid of them. So Mary tries to say that they can't come in because she's sick. Maude is insistent that Susie, her daughter, has a great immune system. She'll be fine. They'll all be fine. So Mary has to practically, like, yell at her to leave. Now, on one hand, I felt bad because I know why she was asking Maude to leave. And I knew that under normal circumstances, she probably would have loved for Maude to come in. But I was also like, damn, Maude, you nosy. Like, stop trying to come in my house. If I told you I don't want you over here, like, I shouldn't have to ask you to leave five times. Anyway, Maude dips. Sam goes outside to make sure that Maude has driven off, and um, Mary tries to close the door behind him, but then he uses the knife to cut through the screen door and come back in. So, 
Baby tries to run to the bedroom and tries to, like, push the door to keep him out. But, obviously, he's stronger than her. And he pushes through the door. She, like, runs over to the other side of the room. She is hysterical. She just wants to be left alone. This has been a long couple hours at this point. But now, he trying to make her feel better. He like, oh, you ain't got to worry about this knife. You know, I, I like you. I just, you know, like, I really just need, just help me find some clothes. He starts to undress in front of her, and she, like, looks away, but, you know, stays facing him, and he can tell that she's clearly shy and doesn't want to watch him undress. So he goes to the restroom to get ready, changes clothes, shaves, basically comes out looking like a new man. On the way out, he asks her what time it is, and at first, Mary's quiet, right? And he comes out of the bathroom, and she's surprised at how nice he cleans up, and she's like, you're different. And he's like, nope, I'm not different. I'm the same dude. I just look better. So he grabs two coats, one for each of them, and says she's coming with him first because nobody's going to be looking for a guy with a woman with him. And second, she's been so nice that now he likes her. She starts crying. She's telling him she's just going to get in the way. She's going to end up messing something up for him. But he slaps her in the face and tells her to be quiet. And he's like, yo, it's a car pulling up. Are you deaf? Like, what? But he, so he goes to check to see what the car is doing. It stalls out for a second, but then it quickly leaves. She comes out and he apologizes for hitting her. But he says, yo, when I ask you to do something, you got to do it fast. And don't stall. She's still begging him. I don't want to go. And he, she tells her, like, you don't have a choice. They walk out the door. Police are waiting outside. And Sam is like, what gave me away? How did you find me? They said it was Mary's mom. When Mary answered the phone without David there, she knew something was wrong. Because Mary is deaf. Which is why she was staring at her husband so lovingly while he was going over the list. Staring this man down while he talked. Didn't hear when the phone rang. Didn't hear when the car was outside. And this man was so controlling and forceful that he thought that she was being a stubborn woman and didn't even take the time to think about the fact that this woman was deaf, bruh. This is the definition of tough luck, bruh. So I love these two episodes because they both highlight a similar experience from different perspectives. So in our first story, we have a woman who's already in a fragile state. She's attacked. Her husband's love for her and need to protect and avenge her ends up being his downfall. She's found holding this already dead flower, something that seems to be a metaphor for her, like this flower, it's beautiful, it's fragile. And usually once a flower is wilted, and it started to die, it is hard to save. And that seems to be similar to what happened to her. Her brain had already started to go and this kind of just pushed it over the edge for her. And it was at that point impossible to save. On the other hand, Mary is a person who should be considered fragile due to her disability. But she's so self-sufficient that a man, a stranger, couldn't even tell that she was deaf. Now, Sam's forceful personality combined with Mary's docility 
was a recipe for disaster. Had she been adamant or more strong-willed about being deaf, or if he had allowed her to simply live life as she normally did, instead of assuming what her emotions should be and assuming that she was being stubborn or trying not to help, he could have very likely gotten away. It's interesting that in some moments, she was so willing to cook for him, give him money, make sure that you know he was okay. But in those moments where she didn't realize something was happening or was absent, he assumed that she was doing it on purpose, even though he really had no reason to believe that because she had been so kind to him before. And if he had just paid attention to that and been more conscious of that, he probably could have gotten away. Mary allowing herself to be led by this man actually helped her and his supposed, his supposed leadership led to his capture. Whereas Elsa allowing her man to lead her led to his demise. The episodes are only about 25 minutes. They're fun, low pressure. If you have a Roku, episodes are free on Roku TV. If you download the Peacock TV app, episodes are also free on there. Um, I'll probably pop in a few more of these episode episodes when I'm not in a movie mood. So I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, I almost did three episodes, but I figured since our last episode was more than an hour long, I'd keep this one super low presh. Um, if you think that I, maybe I should do a third episode, let me know. You know, it doesn't take long to run through them. So, um, if you do think that maybe I should do a third episode or if you'd like to get in touch for any other reason, um, you can, uh, Follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki and message me there. I'm always on Twitter. Um, you can always send information as well as collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to here's looking podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also message me at the Hlaif Pod Instagram. That's H-L-A-Y-F-P-O-D on Instagram. And um, next week... I don't know what movie I'm doing, so I guess it'll be a surprise for all of us, and I'm really excited to see what it's going to be. <laughs> so, in lieu of our usual sign-off, I'm going to read the epilogue from the second story, if you noticed I did not read it earlier, because I'd like to read it now. I do think Sam should be congratulated for such a good try. Perhaps he'll have better luck next time. And returning to the subject of time... I believe we've exhausted that which was allotted to us. And so, until next time, when we shall return with another story, good night. Cheers.